All right, guys, we have a lot of scripture to get into today. Let's bypass the small talk and dive right in. Um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the edge of your rows. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that Bible home. That is our gift to you. You don't have to act like you have to sneak it out of here if you want it. You don't have to steal it. You can take it home openly. You can wave it at someone on the way out. That is our Bible, our gift to you for coming here today. Feel free to take one of those home. Also, if you're a Facebook junkie, and I know you are because I see your posts. If you're a Facebook junkie, if you want to log on to impactcitychurch.com on Facebook, you can go ahead and do, go there to the Facebook page. And the uh, scripture for today will be on there. You can go ahead and read along. And while you're there, go ahead and check in and let people know what God is doing here at Impact City Church. Be like, this guy is yelling at us. It's pretty crazy, but, you know, it's, it's all right. So, um, like you said, we're in Mark chapter 11. If you guys don't know about what we do here, we go verse by verse through the Bible. And we do our teachings verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, the reason why we do that is because we don't like to have any opportunity for, uh, you know, my flesh or my desire to be teaching. I want God to be teaching through me. And the only way we can assure that is if I go verse by verse. So we are forced to hit verses that normally I might want to be tempted to skip because I don't want to teach about that that week. Or I want to teach about something else. So we going verse by verse through scripture has really developed a great culture here at Impact City Church that says no matter what comes our way, we're going to read through everything the Bible has to offer. And so today we are in Mark chapter 11. We'll be starting in verse 12. We've been in the gospel of Mark since January 2014. It's been a fun, fun, fun set of, of scripture so far, and we still have about five more chapters to go. And so it's going to be awesome. So if you remember last week, if you, if you were here last week, Jesus is kind of going into Jerusalem. And as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's riding in like a boss on the back of a donkey. And everyone starts screaming. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're all excited because here comes Jesus. But we figured out and we found out that the people of Israel were excited about Jesus coming because they had a misunderstanding of who Jesus really was. The Jesus they were worshiping was this great tyrant of a, of a ruler that they believed was going to come in, wipe out the enemy, come in, rule and reign with authority within the whole land and uplift Israel, the kingdom of Israel, back up to where it should be. They thought that that's the Jesus that was rolling into town that day. They were sadly mistaken, and Jesus let them know it right off the bat. And as you see in a few more chapters, as we keep reading through the Gospel of Mark, the people who were once crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, are now going to be crying crucify him, crucify him, and they're going to be calling for his death versus calling for his praise. And so we learned that we too can fall into that rut, that we too can start creating our own custom-made Jesus to only adhere to the things that we want, that we say we have things like Prozac Jesus, and that's the Jesus we look to whenever we want to just feel good. And we just say that this is the Jesus that always tells us that everything is great, everything is fine, and just like the Lego movie, everything is awesome. And then tomorrow, it, it, that when we worship this Jesus, we become numb to the, the mortality of the world, that we become numb, and we don't want to mourn with the loss of going on around the world, the evil that's going around the world. And so this is the Prozac Jesus. We talked about Walmart Jesus. We talked about the Jesus that we go to and get everything that we want. And whenever we want something, we go to this, this Jesus, and he gives us whatever we want until Walmart doesn't have what we want, and then we go look for it at some place else. And we said that this is a type of people and, uh, who worship this Jesus who, uh, when Jesus is good, he's cool, he's awesome, until he tells us to do something that we don't want to do, then we go worship something else. 
We looked at District Attorney Jesus, the one that tells us that, that, that we are right all the time, that we are justified for everything we do. That everything that, that we, this is the one we pray to when we want our ex to have a bad day, or the one we pray to, like, Jesus, just please make the brakes go out in their car. You know, this is the Jesus that is always fighting, you know, and, and we're the one that are always right, but when we do that, we become self-righteous. Then we looked at the retirement plan, Jesus, the one that where we, if we pray to all the time, reinvest all of our money into, reinvest all of our time into, all of our service into. We say, hey, Jesus, I'll go to church every Sunday. I will serve in the, in the children's ministry every Sunday. I will do all these things every Sunday. I, I promise, Lord, I will read my Bible every Sunday. And we say that, that that Jesus is the one that we look to as long as we get heaven in return, we're willing to do these things. But we learned that retirement Jesus is not going to get us to heaven ultimately. No, we learned that the real true Jesus is the only one who can do that for us. And today we find him doing that again. He's going into town. But we also learned that because we worshiped all these other custom-made Jesuses, that even though we do that, there's still hope for us. We learned that the hope was the fact that Jesus came to die on the cross because of people like us who constantly get it wrong. And that is the hope for us. That was what we talked about last week. Now, Jesus is, uh, we're going to be picking up right where we left off. Jesus is riding back into town. He's coming back into town again. He had spent the day in Jerusalem, kind of hung out there. This is during the time of the Passover. So the city is just getting like crazy right now. And Jesus hangs out there. He goes back out to Bethany. And then he's coming back in today. And we're going to find out that he's a little hungry. Okay, he wants some breakfast. And so this is where we're at today. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, let's read along. It says this. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And he came to it, and he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you Again, and his disciples heard it. Now, this is one of those passages in the Bible that I can be honest with you and tell you that I've read lots of times. And I have literally just skipped over it. Because I'm like, okay, Jesus is hungry, the fig tree doesn't have anything in it, and he's mad. And if you read it at face value, if you just read it like that, you literally can say, man, Jesus is a grump in the morning. He must not be a morning person. He's mad. He's like the tree. This is like the equivalent to me going to my Keurig, and I'm over there, I'm trying to fix coffee, and there's no K-cups. And I'm like, may no one ever drink coffee from you again, Keurig machine. That's the equivalent to what just happened. No, that's, that's a joke. There's always K-Cups in Casa de Trevino Cafe. There's always K-Cups. If you want K-Cups, my, my wife buys like six boxes of K-Cups every week. And we literally drink all of them. And so, so, but if we were to take that scripture at face value, that's the conclusion we would draw. That Jesus is just simply upset because there's no figs on the tree. But as we know in scripture, there's never anything just put there for no reason. And we know in Scripture, there's always a reason for everything that we read. Everything we read has a reason and a purpose. See, the tree was in leaf. That means it had leaves on it. It was green. It was lush. It was flourishing with what appeared to be life going through it. I mean, it was green, fluffy. I mean, this is a good tree. If you have a green thumb, this is the tree that's in your yard. This is one that's just full of leaves. And it indicated to Jesus that because it had leaves, it also had to have fruit in it. Because trees that are in lush and bloom always have fruit in them at that time. That's what happens when the tree is growing and it's in lush and it's, it looks like it's healthy. It's got to have fruit. It's got to be bearing something. And when Jesus goes up to the tree and he finds out that it's empty inside, he gets really upset. 
And he sees this as an opportunity to do an object lesson for his disciples. Because as they're walking in there, he sees the tree. He goes up there, it's empty. He's like, man, I can do an object lesson here. I can teach something. After all, the Bible says that the disciples heard him say this to the tree. And right now, uh, you know, the object lesson is just for the disciples now, but eventually we're going to see it get to be an object lesson for the whole town of Jerusalem. See, the Old Testament prophets would use the tree as a form of saying the fig tree was a form of saying that Israel was like that tree. And Jesus knew that. And so drawing on that illustration, he was saying that the fruitless tree is a metaphor of the reflection of the fruitless people of God at the time. He's saying that because this tree is fruitless, it's the same thing as the fruitless people of God at the time. You see, if we were a people that call ourselves people of God, followers of God, disciples of Jesus, and Christians, that we have got to bear the fruit of those labels. In fact, you want to write that down. If we are a people who want to call us the people of God, disciples of Jesus, Christians, followers of Christ, then we have got to bear the fruit of those labels. See, when we bear fruit, it's not really meant for us. When we bear fruit, initially it's not meant for us to look good, to say, hey, look at me, I have a lot of fruit. The tree doesn't start spurting fruit out to say, look at me, look at me, I'm the tree that has a lot of fruit growing on it. Yeah, I got more fruit than that guy. You know, no, no, the, the whole reason why trees grow fruit is so that people can get nourishment from it. And the whole reason why we as Christians bear fruit in our lives is so that people around us can gain nourishment from the fruit that God is producing in our lives. And so as Christians, if we are not bearing fruit, people are not being nourished by anything that we do. So it's very important to realize that this is a vital part in God's plan. So when Jesus sees the tree that has no fruit in it, he started to curse it. And he used it as a way to teach his disciples. It was an object lesson that was for them personally right there. But as you're going to find out in the next couple of verses, it's going to transcend to the whole city of Jerusalem. Let's keep reading along. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, writ- is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they, were, for they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And then evening came, and they went out of the city. So Jesus and his disciples are entering back into Jerusalem during the Passover. And this was a huge time for Israel. The Passover was like the biggest holiday of the year in the whole season. This is the time where everyone came from all over the nations, from all over the towns, all the Jews came into Jerusalem because it was the capital. And they would come to Jerusalem, they would enter the temple, and they would offer sacrifices for all of the sins that they had done the whole year before that. This was the Passover going on. And at this time, the city's population grew to literally over 2 million. That's six times the limit of what Jerusalem normally was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Beach to Bay coming to Corpus? Can you imagine Buck Days coming to Corpus and the city growing to six times the amount of people here in the city? 
Can you imagine the chaos that would be going on? The restaurants full of people. H-E-B sold out of the greatest things that are ever made through H-E-B. All the great, awesome, you know, um, restaurants and bars and everything are just going to be packed. Hotels booked out for the whole week. Craziness. Traffic is bad as it is in Corpus. If you haven't figured it out yet, just drive down SBID at noon. You know, that's how bad it, it was getting in Jerusalem. And people were just crowding Jerusalem. They were coming into the city. And Jesus walks into the temple. And it's filled with people. Just tons of people throughout, you know, the temple. And there's even, the Bible said that there were people walking, carrying things through the temple. So, like, the temple was probably in the middle of the city. And so to avoid having to walk all around it, people were just, like, carrying stuff through the temple. Hey, open up the side door. Open up this side door. Hey, just walk through here, man. People were kind of going through there. People were setting up tables, and they were selling things. They were just doing all these crazy things in the temple. It was just stuff of people at that time. It was insane. Jesus gets into the temple, and he enters into the area called the Court of Gentiles. As he walks into this big court area, it's sort of a big open, kind of, I would call it a lobby or kind of a welcome center, big open area in the front of the temple. As he walks in, this is a place where they call the court of Gentiles. So we have Gentiles and we have Jewish people. Jewish people were the holy chosen people of God. Gentiles were everyone else. And this was the one place in the temple that the Gentiles could gather into. They could come into the temple. But as you made your way further into the temple... It got a little bit more restrictive. In fact, there was only, they were only allowing Jews to go further into the temple. There were signs that say uh, Gentiles, if they were to enter this part of the temple, they would be punished by death. I mean, it was some serious things. And in the heart of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. It was covered by a giant veil. And the only time someone could enter into this place was once a year for the, sacrificial, uh, for the sacrifices of all the nation of Israel. And a chief priest of the temple would enter into the Holy of Holies and make those sacrifices just once a year. That day was called the Day of Atonement. And it was a big part of the Passover as well. So I just want you guys to kind of get this vibe. Big open area. Tons of people. And then there was more restricted as they kept going further and further in. Jesus walked into the big open court and there was just masses amount of people just throughout the court. Doing crazy things in the court. Just selling things. And you got to remember, just like any other holiday, this is a big local business holiday as well. The income for Jerusalem is going to just go skyrocket up in the air. Vendors are coming from all over the town because they know that people are going to be in Israel. They know that they're going to have an opportunity to make some money off of all the tourists that are coming in. And they're going to be selling things. They're going to be setting up shop. And so the influx of people caused them to say, maybe we set up shop inside the temple. Because that's where everyone's going. So they set up shop inside the temple. They started selling things inside the temple. In fact, they were even able to set up tables to exchange currency from all the other nations that were coming in. They would exchange the, the, the currency they had for what they called uh, a temple tax. And they were able to pay the tax to the temple for the whole year. And there were people exchanging money there inside the temple. There were people also selling animals for sacrifice. At this time of the year and Passover, over 250,000 animals were sacrificed. 250,000 animals. Think about that. 250,000 animals were sacrificed during this week. And the majority of those animals were goats, lambs, and bulls. 
And so people would take goats, lambs, and bulls from all over the, the nation. They would gather them over to the temple, and they would sell them to people who couldn't afford to just kind of bring their own cow around. Like, who wants to carry a cow across all these nations, you know? When they get to the temple, we'll, we'll just buy our, another cow there. We'll sacrifice that one, you know? So they, they come into the temple, and there's literally corrals set up probably, and there's all these animals around. And all that comes with animals, if you've ever been in 4-H or FFA, you know what animals do inside, you know, when they're inside, and it stinks, and it smells, and this is inside of the church. This is inside of the temple. You imagine all those animals being there doing that. And for those who couldn't afford giant animals, there was also a clause in the Old Testament that said that the poor could sell, could sacrifice a pigeon, because a pigeon was a lot cheaper to get, and so there was guys in there with tables with tons of pigeons set up as well. So I just want you guys to picture this scene. Just hundreds and hundreds of people in this big open area of the church. You got a corner of just animals and just, you know, you know um, goats and lambs and bulls. And you got another guy over here selling birds and the bird poop and the pigeons and, and all the craziness over here. You have a guy over here selling, you know, exchanging money. He's there, they're bartering. He's probably pulling a little bit of a side note on that, a little bit off the top of that. And all this is going on, okay? And Jesus comes in here and he flips out. And he literally flips out. He starts overturning the money tables. Coins are flying everywhere. He takes the chair of the guy selling the pigeons and he tosses it across the, the way. He's probably scaring everyone out of the temple. And in one of the gospels even says that he makes a whip. He goes Zorro on everyone and he starts slashing, you know, hitting people with the whip. He gets crazy up inside the temple. And obviously he is really upset about what's going on here. He is really ticked off at the fact that people are using the house of God to make business and become, uh, what he said, a den of robbers. Now, what is going on here? Why is he so upset? Because obviously he's mad about something. He's obviously mad about the disrespect for God's house that he has seen here. So the temple was not made for this. And so he comes into the temple, and he gets all mad. He starts getting crazy in there, and he starts quoting scripture to all the people inside the temple. In fact, he goes old school back to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. It's going to be up on the screen right here. He says this out of the book of Isaiah. It says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to the minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These, he says this, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and the house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. See, Jesus was upset because the part of the church that was meant for everyone to come in. Not just the holy people, not just the people of God, the people that are just broken, the people who are far away from God, the people that need to be in the church. The one place where people who are not connected to God can come into the temple and pray and get to know Jesus. This is the church that we want here in America where people come into who are not usually welcomed in other significant churches. This is the part of the church where people can come into and be welcomed by God. This part of the church is not being operated the right way. In fact, it's not being operated at all. It's just chaos in there. And he gets upset because he knew the purpose of the Passover and why people came to make sacrifices. He knew that why they were there, but he also knew that the place was designed for Gentiles to get to know God. And they weren't able to do that. Because of all the chaos, they weren't even able to do that. Can you just imagine trying to pray and trying to get to know God on Black Friday in front of Target or Best Buy? 
Can you imagine the chaos? I mean, you're sitting there like, TVs are like 10.99 or something like that. You know, you're sitting there trying to pray. Here's a coffee maker for five bucks. And I don't even know why I need it. You know, I'm just going to buy it, right? But you're in there like, you know, I'm going to pray right here in aisle six. And you just like sit down and people are like, you know, growing over you. And, and you're trying to kind of get alone with God. You're trying to get that. I just want to be alone. You know, and you're getting smacked by someone. Like that's what's going on here. And, and Jesus is like, what the heck, man? Like the Gentiles are trying to get close to God. And there's people selling and making money off of everything in here. It was a den of thieves. They were making money off of all the animals they were selling. And they were making even more money because they were probably price gouging the heck out of those things. Typical bull goes for $350, but today on Passover, $1,000. Typical goat goes for $250, but today on Passover, $850. You know, they were definitely making money off of all this. And Jesus was angry about that. He had very good reason to be angry about that, but who else should have been angry about this, guys? Who else should have seen this and been angry? The people that should have said something about this Besides Jesus were the chief priests of the temple, the pastors of the church, the people who were in charge of this temple, the priests, the holy ones of that church should have been upset just like Jesus was. Because their role was to be in charge of the temple. Their role was to represent God as a holy, awesome God. And they were in charge of being able to keep in order everything at the temple, but they were not. Why were they not angry about this? Because they were making a killing off of it. Because just like a flea market charges for vendors to come in, the chief high priests were getting a little bit off the top. The chief high priests not only were getting a little bit off the top, they were getting respect. Because there was tons and tons of people in their church. You got money, and you got pride. That's why they weren't getting mad. In fact, they weren't getting mad at the fact that people were all up in the church. They got mad for another reason. See, Jesus challenged the chief priests by quoting Old Testament scripture to them. Scriptures that they knew by heart because they were chief priests. And they knew that their authority as pastors, as chief priests of the temple, was being challenged by this guy who walked in out of nowhere. And it made them mad. Their income and their respect were on the line. And Jesus was threatening the sweet deal that was going on in their temple. This is the week that they made their money, man. This is the bonus week. This is the week where everything gets done right. This is the week where people look and say, hey, look at that temple. They had over 6,000 people come to church that Sunday. That's a great church to come to. And look at this church. They had over 4,000 people come to church and sacrifice animals. That's a great church to go to. You know, their pride was on the line, and also their finances were on the line as well. So naturally, this caused them to get angry, so angry at Jesus that they wanted to kill Jesus. The Bible says that the chief priests and the scribes heard it, this is verse 18, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, seeking a way to destroy Jesus. You know, the funny thing is, when we get angry, something happens. See, when we get angry about something, it reveals in our hearts what really matters in our life. When you get angry about something, it reveals what is really in your heart. See, in Jesus' heart, there was the value to honor God with everything that he had, including the temple. So when the temple was being threatened by people outside and, and, and people inside the temple selling things, he got angry. His heart was to honor God. And when that was being threatened, he got angry. 
But the sweet deal that was going on inside the temple for the chief priest, when that was threatened, the priests got angry. They weren't angry about the temple being trashed. They were angry about the fact that Jesus was interrupting the sweet deal that was going on, the income and the pride that was happening there. Author and pastor Tim Keller once said this. He said that one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. For if our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. How many of you guys freak out when your counterfeit God gets compromised? He says, do not say what shame and how difficult, but rather, this is the end. There is no hope. Timothy Keller says that. So what he's saying in a nutshell is that there is something in our life that when threatened causes us to just blow up and freak out. That if there's anything in our life that causes us to do that, that one thing we hold very dear to our hearts. And if we're honest with each other, if we're honest with each other here today, the one thing, the number one thing, the number one idol in our lives, the number one most important thing in our lives should not be our jobs. Should not be our house. Should not be our pride. Should not be our TV, our cars, our sports team. Go Cowboys. Should not be our sports team, our children, or even our spouse. No. The number one thing, the most important thing in our life when threatened and should cause us to ignite with a righteous anger should be God. See, anything else that angers us so greatly to that level should be a neon sign that says this is an idol in our life. You know, I grew up in the 90s, as y'all, many of y'all might have, and, uh, some of you kids don't even know this, but there was a comedian named Jeff Foxworthy. Y'all ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy? Who's smarter than a fifth grade or third grader or something like that, right? I always fail those questions, by the way. And um, he had this skit back in the day, I real famous. It was all, you might be a redneck. You might be a redneck. Y'all remember that skit? Y'all know that? And he would ask a question. It would go like this. He would go, you know, if your earrings double as fishing lures, you might be a redneck. You know, that was one of the things he said. Or if you go to the dump and you come back with more than what you took, you might be a redneck. And he would say these things, and he got me thinking, right? He got me thinking. What if I just kind of twisted that? And so I was thinking, if you become angry and throw stuff across the room when your favorite sports team loses, you might have an idol. If you get mad when the pastor preaches about tithing in church, you might have an idol. If you're going to church on Sundays, means that you're going to miss overtime so you don't go to church and you get mad when your wife gives you grief about it, you might have an idol. If you get mad and offensive every time someone cracks a joke or pokes fun at your pride, you have an idol. You might have an idol. And one more, if you compromise your relationship with God for your relationship with your spouse, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, and you get angry when your Christian friends point it out, you might have an idol. See, all of us can easily start holding things above Jesus without even knowing it. It's so easy. The idol creeps into our lives, and before you know it, you're more concerned about this thing than you are about God and Jesus. So before we start to judge the chief high priest of the temple too harshly, let's look at ourselves. Let's take a good long look at ourselves 
and ask ourselves, are our hearts driven by the same motive? Are our hearts driven by the same motives that the chief high priests were? Are we following after our hearts more than we do the heart of the true high priest, Jesus Christ? Do we tend to value ourselves more than the value of God, than we value God? See, the thing is, according to the New Testament, we're all called to be priests in some way. All of us are. You, me, everyone in this room. Y'all please turn with me to 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, are called, who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. See, we're all called for something better. We are called to be priests whose primary value is to uphold the glory of God. Each one of us here in the room, like we said this morning in the scripture before we started singing, that we are to praise God and sing praises to him. That is upholding the, the glory of God. When people look at our life, we are to uphold the glory of God in everything that we do. We are all called to do this. So when we see the glory of God being obstructed by something, and when we see the poor being exhorted or the prayer being overlooked in some way, it should cause righteous anger to dwell up inside our hearts because it is not right. Whenever we see something that is not right, that is going against what God wants, it should cause you to get angry. It should cause you to get frustrated. It should cause a stirring in your heart. And I want to ask you, does it? Or do you more often get angry when your prosperity and your pride is in question? Do you get more angry when you see some injustice happen for God? Or do you get more angry whenever your pride or your prosperity is in question? Oftentimes, we we more than often reflect on the heart of the chief high priest than we really do reflect the heart of the true chief priest, Jesus Christ. We're more so looking more like these Pharisees than we are looking like Jesus. But listen, there's hope for us. There is still hope for us in this moment. See, praise God that there was always some provision for the poison that we so freely ingest. The hope is found in the next verses. This is Mark 11, verse 20. It says, and they passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away in its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. As they left the city after this traumatic event, after this, this crazy thing that Jesus just rolled up in the temple, went, you know, went all crazy on them, and then he's like, after they leave, and they're leaving the town, and they're passing by the same tree that earlier we found out was all flourishing and was full of leaves and it was all beautiful. They go by that same tree, and as they walk by, Peter goes, hey, check it out. The tree that was like in leaf is now withered and dead. It looks a lot like the trees in Felix's yard. You know, like, that's the, like, it's all withered and dead. Let that sink in for a moment, though. The tree that they saw in the morning that was full of life in the afternoon, within one day, has been withered and killed away. See, the fruitless tree has all the characteristics of life. And Jesus cursed the tree, and it withered and died. Why? 
cursed the tree, he withered and died, and then he walked into the temple and he threw people out in the presence of God because they were worshiping, uh, they were being, their worship was being obstructed and the glory of God was being overlooked. And then he called the disciples together and he told them to just have faith in God when they saw the dead tree. Here's the key point. The remedy for, fruit, for a fruitless tree and a faithless priesthood is to always have faith in God. The remedy for a fruitless tree and a faithless priesthood, the wicked heart that we might have is to have faith in God. But how do we do that? How do we have faith in God? How do we build up faith that produces fruit? Can we stir that up in our own hearts? Is it, uh, is it that we need to sing more passionately? Does it mean that we need to study scriptures more diligently, more, in, more on point? Does it mean that we need to serve more wholeheartedly out of our hearts? Or, or does, it call, does it mean that we need to figure out ways to have more faith? Maybe we got to read a book by, you know, by a certain author. Or how do we have more faith in God? What do we need to do? So you can try all of these things and all your efforts will be in vain. Because ultimately we will realize that our faith in God does not come from our works. Our faith in God comes from the grace of God. See, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses, but God saved us. When you're dead, you have no way of moving. How many of you guys have been dead before? We don't, like, we, we, when you're dead, nothing happens. You can't do anything on your own. So the only way that a dead person or a dead body can have faith in anything is through the life of Christ. Through the grace of God. Look here at what the writer of Hebrews says about that in Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance and with the heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience that our bodies were washed with pure water. And let us hold fast with the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promised, he who promises faithful. I like when it says, by the new thing in the living way that he opened, only by him. Jesus is the only answer to our faithless and fruitless life that we can occur. Jesus is the only answer for that. He is the only one who could ever connect us to the Father. See, just like the Gentiles, we were once separated from God from the Holy of Holies. Remember I said the Gentiles were in the very forefront of the temple, and they could never enter the back. In fact, the only one who could go to the back was a chief high priest. But Jesus comes into our life, and he enters our life, and he goes through there. And as he is atoned, as he is sacrificed for ours, he rips the veil open, and he allows a way for everyone to enter into the Holy of Holies for us. No other man, no savior, no idol can ever do that for either one of us here today. Our chief high priest cannot do that for us. Anyone who is controlled by a selfish desire of money, a selfish desire of pride, a selfish desire of power could ever connect us to God. The greatest pastors in the world, the greatest theologians in the world, the biggest megachurches around town and the biggest places on earth, none of us, me included, the person next to you can never connect you closer to God except through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that for us. See, we stand just like the tree full of what looks to be life, but from a distance, and as we get closer, we find out that we are fruitless. 
See, unless we have faith in God, a relationship in Jesus Christ that says you have surrendered everything to him, then just like the tree, we will not have the fruit that we need to nourish people around us for them to see the love of Christ in us. We won't blossom fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those fruits will never come from us except through Jesus Christ. This is what God produces in you. So when people look at your life, they don't see a tree that's full of life that has emptiness on the inside. They see a tree that's full of life that has something to offer them. It's the mission of God. When people look at us and they see uh, a life, a tree that's full of life, they see that life that is happy, they see something going on, and they get to know you, and they actually look at them, and you invest life into them. You have something to offer them. You can say, look, you have self-control, because I have self-control in Jesus. You can't overcome that addiction. Look, you have kindness that can be living in you, because kindness is living in me. Let me show you what that looks like, because if you have kindness like Jesus had kindness on us, you can love your spouse better. You can have a better opportunity. If you have patience, if you get impatient with your kids, know that your Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, has more patience with you, the most disruptive kid he's ever had before. And you have that fruit to offer people because it's living inside of you. Faithfulness. If you just feel like you want to give up, you know what? I felt like that too one time. And because the fruit that is in my life has told me to keep pushing forward, I can give that to you and show it to you. And that is you here today. And maybe you say, I don't have that fruit in my life. You know what? Maybe I've held things above. Maybe the one thing in my heart is not Jesus, and it's not God. Maybe I hold my, my life more in my, in my heart than I do God. Maybe I hold more in my job, and maybe I hold more in my, my home. Maybe I put more things of higher value. Look, all, look, God gives us good things. And I'm not saying that we should ignore and not like those things. I'm saying when those things become of higher value than, than the things that God has, than God himself, then that is bad. If that is you here today, ask him to come into your life. Ask him to wreck your heart like he wrecked the temple. Ask him to drive out the sin that obstructs things uh, in your heart from worshiping Jesus freely. And let him give us the faith to grow and to have fruit in our lives so that we can show the world the fruit of God living in our hearts. Amen? Let's all stand up and let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the cross, and we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made upon that cross for us, the atonement of all of our sins. God, maybe today, maybe we just, if we're in the room, maybe we just admit that maybe some of us don't have it all together. Maybe we admit that some of us struggle. Maybe we admit that some of us have issues still in our lives. Well, people, if that is you here today, church, if that is you here today, may you just... Admit it and confess it to God right now. May you allow God's spirit to come into your life and push you forward. Maybe you're in a season of just, you're in a rut right now. You need to get out of that. May you look forward to God. May he pull you out of that rut today. Yeah, and maybe you're here. Maybe you're doing good. Maybe you you got, Felix, I, I put my faith in Christ. I have everything lined up. Everything looks good. Can I challenge you to invest that fruit into someone else here today? Can I challenge you to say, you know what, I have everything good, but I am lacking in the mission of God. I'm lacking in community. I'm lacking in investing my life into someone else. Would you do that today? Would you make a commitment to the first thing that comes to your mind that you're going to commit to giving that person some of the fruit that God has grown inside your heart?
Christians, we serve a mighty God. We thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us that day at Calvary. God, we love you and we praise you. We offer up our lives to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all worship one more time.